Hey gang, Red Hills Rancher here with another episode of Ranching Reboot. That show last week sure is going to be hard to top. Temple Grand is going to be a hard guest to follow. But today's guest brings with him over 20 years of experience with state extension. We dive into how too much diversity in a business doesn't always lead to profit and where you can learn the skills to help you become a better manager and business person. And I want to apologize in advance for the little bit of background noise, the pen clicking. That wasn't me. Riding with me as usual is my co-pilot CK, and here she is to introduce today's guest, someone that knows how to walk the walk of good management and a good business. Hi, everyone. This is Ranching Reboot with Red Hills Rancher and yours truly, CK. Today, we have Dallas Mount of Ranch Management Consultants. Dallas, how are you doing? Doing great, CK. How are you? I'm good. The snow is melting, so I'm glad we have some some wet weather outside. We're doing good. How about you, Brian? Uh, my mud was starting to get a little bit dehydrated, so I'm I'm glad that that's back to, to tacky and muddy and the soil in the ground. So Dallas, yes, sir. Just give us a brief overview. Tell us about yourself and uh, and your history and how you got to be where you are. Okay, sure. Um, I, I did not grow up in agriculture. Uh, my dad was a Methodist pastor, and we traveled around a lot, uh, lived in different places. Um, it, when I was a junior in high school, we moved to Park City, Utah, and uh, I didn't really seem to fit in with uh, the kids that were in Park City. And so I trotted down the valley to a little town of Heber. At that town, time, it'll town. It's not anymore. Um, and, and that's kind of where I found my peer group. And most of them were involved in agriculture some way. So, so that kind of drew me to it. We did high school rodeo for a while, messed around there, um, did, you know, worked on some different places uh, those years of my life. And when it came time to pick a major for college, uh, animal science sounded like fun. What the heck, you know? So uh, off I went to Colorado State University. Um, and at that time, I, I had the luck and fortune to go to work for uh, some ranching, uh, Weaver, Weaver Ranch there north of Fort Collins is where I spent quite a few years uh, in my early time. Did did some time on some yearling and hang outfits uh, and actually spent a year riding pins in a feedlot um, and, mm -hmm. and did, all, did all that through my um, master's degree and uh, then started as an extension agent here in Wyoming in about 2000. So did that for about 20 years. And um, it was, oh, probably about, uh, I don't know, seven to eight years ago, uh, I decided to go to ranching for profit and uh, met Dave Pratt and saw him teach the school and it blew my mind. I loved it. So mm -hmm. I definitely wanted to be involved with, uh, with that. And um, couple of years later, Dave came to me and asked if I wanted to learn how to teach the school. And, and I did and got to teach uh, under his tutelage for several years and, uh, and then ended up buying the company here about a year and a half ago. So that's, that's my short story. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. Um, so tell us a little bit more about, about how you came to, how your relationship with Dave developed and how you came to own the company and talk a little bit about the High Plains Ranch practice. Sure. Yeah. So, so I was with the University of Wyoming and was there for a few years and uh, Aaron Berger and I kind of partnered up on some things and, and we decided we wanted to build a um, program, an educational program for ranchers. Yeah. That, that was looking deeper than just the things you normally get with extension. You know, you go to the one-off days of, hey, here's your nutrition talk, or here's your talk on rangeland stuff. And, and nobody was connecting the dots. So, so we wanted to pull it together and do an integrated systems type of a, uh, of a course for ranchers. And uh, Aaron was a big part of this. And we came up with the High Plains Ranch Practicum, which was an eight-day course that was spread out over six-month time period. People came for two days at a time. 
And, uh, and, and we didn't realize at the time, but we were trying to build ranching for profit from the ground up. And mm. <laughs> so, um, so we did that with our first few years were uh, working with Harlan Hughes um, from North Dakota. He had the, he was famous for the unit cost of production stuff with the economics and we'd, we'd bring in experts, right. And, and, and that became the traveling PowerPoint roadshow and, and Aaron and I didn't really like that. So we, we, we kind of regrouped and, and uh, made it more hands-on, you know, fewer experts, but, uh, but better quality teaching. And, and so we did that together for, almost, I don't know, 10, 11 years, uh, probably did about 15 uh, schools throughout that time and uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, but when I went to Ranching for Profit, it, it felt like those guys had created 20 years ago what I was trying to build from the ground up and it, and they'd done a better job of it, to be honest. So um, so it kind of shifted my focus from, uh, from, from what we were doing. And, and I just really fell in love with the ranching for profit curriculum and the, and the change it was helping ranchers um, make in their lives. Awesome. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about, uh, about your operation. You do have some of your own cows, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't own any cattle at the moment. Um, so my wife and I ended up buying uh, some, some land that surrounds our house here in Wheatland. Uh, we were lucky enough that the owners of it, you know, we, we have, we have a little place in the country and we said to the owners, Hey, if you ever want to sell this, let, let us have a crack at it. And they did. Um, and so we ended up buying uh, 80, 80 acres of land that surrounds our house, but it's in a floodplain and it's, it's nice, big, subby, uh, irrigated ground grass, uh, you know, that grows six, seven feet tall and not in good years. And, and so with that, I was able to really kind of put into practice the, a lot of the intensive grazing stuff and the, the, the more intensive management. Um, and, you know, we, it started learning some lessons on that. You know, nobody gets it right the first time, but we, we took what used to be, used to run 20, 30 cows to running about 80 to hundred cows, uh, most of the summer on that 80 acres. And, uh, and, and I, there've been a few years where I'd own stuff. I'd buy, buy stockers, um, or buy wean calves from my neighbors and, and run a little stocker deal. Um, a few times we bought coal cows, short-term cows, um, at, at the barn and, and turn those. Um, but I've really attracted, kind of gravitated to the custom grazing. Um, it fits with my life um, outside of ranching a lot better. Uh, so I could bring those in, right. in May and then they all go home in the end of October. And then this last year, we actually ended up picking up a, about a 4,500 acre piece to the uh, west of Wheatland. And so we've expanded that quite a bit. I'll be hiring an employee to run it for us um, this summer. Um, and, and then I also lease quite a bit of ground ar around us at home. So, so we run about 200, 250 cows, um, in the summertime and, uh, and, you know, keep, keeps me grounded. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know it's a, it's kind of a full-time job. So, you know, like we said in the intro, this is kind of, you know, we, we want to give information and we want to talk. So is there anything so far that comes to mind on, on advice on how to get started? Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of things, um, you know, we, we have a lot of people that are getting started into ranching, re reach out to us at Ranching for Profit. And, and a lot of people come to the school as, hey, I, I want to do this as a profession. I want to be a rancher. And, and I think the, the biggest thing where people, when they're starting out, their first thoughts in their mind is, is they confuse the land business and the livestock business. Um, you know, have you guys, I'm, I'm kind of joining in here. Have you guys already talked about this on your podcast uh, before? Or? Okay. No, no, go ahead. Okay. Keep going. All right. Okay. So, so, uh, you know, the land, be, owning land is a separate business decision from, from running livestock. 
and, and mm -hmm. the question I like to ask on this is, could you own a million acres of, of ranch land and not own a single stinking cow? Yeah, the answer is yes, right? So, and, and then could you own, could you run a thousand cows and not own a single acre? Yeah, uh, so they're, they're two different decisions. Uh, to, so you can be in the livestock business without being in the land business and, and you can be in the land business and, and really it's more accurately called the land investment it is land, land is a great place to park money and, and build wealth mm -hmm. over time, uh, but it's not a great place to cash flow a business from. So if, if you, you know, say, Hey, I want to go out and I'm going to spend half a million dollars on this piece of land. Um, it's, it's the pretty rare piece of land that really cash flows very well. Um, so, I mean, you, you could be building wealth during the time you own that land, but, but you also could be broke doing it if, if that makes sense. So, so I think that's the number one thing for people to start with if they're starting from scratch is to realize that being in the land investment is a different business decision from being in the livestock business. And that's, that's a very important distinction I think a lot of people miss or, or just simply don't understand. And you know, we're talking about the difference between the land business and the livestock business. And I would even say that on the livestock business, you know, there are two parts of you're, you're either in the livestock business or the meat business. And the example would be you're either in the cattle business or the beef business. And, you know, for a lot of us producers, you know, there's a point where our animals exit our cattle business and go to a beef business and whether or not that's our captive beef business in a vertically integrated model, doing direct consumer or some kind of retained ownership model. Um, you know, at, at some point we have to realize that you know, your animals exit the cattle business and enter the beef business. And that all has to be separate from the land business. You're, you're exactly right. Yeah. And, you know, we, it, we we go through that stuff at the school in pretty good detail about helping people figure out where to draw those lines in terms of, you know, enterprise analysis. When when does it become its own enterprise? Um, you know, and, and I mean, we could, you, you get some people that just complicate this down so far that, that they're driving themselves crazy, right? So, but but we need to draw some lines in it somewhere. And, and I like what you've laid out there, Brian. We've got a, a land business, we've got a livestock business, and then really you've got a, a meat marketing business. Right, and I think that, you know, a lot of us in the industry, we've totally missed that meat marketing business. You know, we're just content just to take them to the sale barn and not worry about what happens after that point. And I think that we have to be a lot more conscious of the product that producing and connecting worry of that product to it. I, I agree. It, it's a it's a real opportunity for some. Um, I I would say there's a lot of ranchers that um, that could become a distraction for right. And if for some people it's not their it's not their skill set. So it, it's not right for everybody to think. Well, I I need to be selling direct to consumers, right? Some people just don't have the don't have the skills for it. Don't want to deal with uh, with some of the people issues related to it, really. Uh, so it's. It's a, it's something to be considered, but it's certainly not right for everybody. I think it's also kind of important to note that, you know, if, if you're on the outside looking in that before you take that jump and make an investment in land or purchase any livestock, it's important to think about your marketing decision and how you're going to market that product before you even have it. Yeah, exactly. It's a good, good spot to start. Um, you know, so, so I, I see a lot of people that say, well, I want to be a rancher. And, and so their assumptions are, A, I need to own the land. Okay, I think we've already debunked that. Yeah, you, you don't need to own the land. If, if you're coming to this with a lot of capital in your pocket, perhaps you, do, you, you want to, but uh, for, for a lot of people starting up, that's not the case. Um, and then, you know, B, the assumption is I want to run cows. 
right? And that's a that's a dangerous one as well because um, you know the, the cows are are great and they're fun, but uh, I mean your competition when you're in the cow business is the doctor or the lawyer or the outside wealthy person that has cows is a hobby. And, and yeah. so you're marketing in the same thing that they're marketing in, right? And, and they're usually willing to sell that animal at a break even or at a loss. where if you're doing this as a business, uh, you probably don't have that luxury. So I'm, I'm not saying you can't have a ranch that's profitable where you run cows. I mean, that, that's not what I'm saying, but I will tell when you- When you guys do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are plenty of people doing it. it, but it is probably more of the one, more of the one of the more challenging lives classes of livestock to run at a profit is to have that cow herd. So you're dancing around a term and or, or a concept, and that is fit your enterprise to your resource. You want to talk and, about that for a minute? Yeah, and and your skill set. Um, so so resource base. Um, I'm sitting on a. Let's pretend I'm sitting on a beautiful mountain ranch, and and uh, you know I have wonderful grass six months out of the year, and then I have snow up to my armpits for six months out of the year. A, a year-round breeding herd is probably not going to be the most profitable thing for me to run because because the way to get those animals through those other six months of the year when I've snoped my armpit, it's going to be shoveling out the feed, right? So, so there's an example of what we're saying. So a, an environment like that is probably going to suit itself more to a seasonal livestock enterprise. Uh, you know, and, and everybody's going to think of stalkers. It, it doesn't have to be stalkers. It could be uh, something else. Well, I mean, just like what I'm doing, a custom grazing somebody else's cows, right? So there's plenty of people that are happy to send you their cows in the spring. Uh, maybe they're busy farming. Maybe they're busy doing something else. And then they come get them in the fall uh, when their farming slows down. And, and then they get to have the fun of feeding cows all winter. Um, so, so yeah, so fit, fit your uh, enterprise to your environment. And, and then I think your skill set is, is another thing to consider there. Um, I mean, what do you, what do you want to do? What do you enjoy doing? What, what does, what you do really add value? Where, where do you add value to, to those animals under your control? And, and that's going to be different for all of us. Oh, yeah. So, are you starting to see more operations diversify and increase their bottom line? So I, I don't think I would, I would say that. Um, I, I am seeing some operations diversify. Sometimes it's good and sometimes it's, it's not good. Um, I'm probably kind of a, a, an odd duck in this. Um, you know, you, when I was with Extension, you, we, we had like this dog and pony show that Extension was doing for a while about diversity and sustainability. And they were telling everybody, you know, you need to add these other enterprises and you need to look at ways to diversify your business. And if you look at the diversity from an economics perspective, um, diversity is not a profit maximizing strategy. Okay? Diversity in itself is a risk management strategy. Yeah. So, so let's take, a, for an example, a, um, a livestock operation that runs cows, um, runs stockers, and, and runs some custom grazed cattle. Okay. So they've, they've got three enterprises. Okay. They've got cows, they've got stockers, and they've got custom grazers. Okay. Now, from a risk management, that, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. I've, I've got cows. I can sell calves. If the calf market is not where I want it to be, I can hold those calves back. They roll into my stalker program real easy. Um, and, and I've got custom graze cattle that I take in. And so that's also provide kind of a floor, right? I know what I'm going to make on those before the year even starts. It's going to provide good cash flow. Okay. Now, if we stepped and looked at those um, three enterprises economically and then said, okay, well, which one of these enterprises is working the best? For every unit of forage on your ranch, which we call a standard animal unit, for, for every standard animal unit, 
which produces the highest gross margin, which, you know, can, which is, makes the best contribution. And, and we look at those, well, one of them is going to win. I mean, one of them is going to be higher than the other. And, and so if you looked at that and you said, well, why don't we just do more of that? Right. So, so there's your profit maximizing strategy is, is you do the thing that has the highest gross margin to the, to the most uh, to, for all the resource. Right. Cause these are the example I gave, these three things are competing for resources. Right. Okay. So, so that's what I mean when I say diversity is a risk management strategy. There, there is a, there is a, but, so if you can overlay an enterprise that doesn't compete for resources on your ranch, and, and it doesn't require a, a bunch of overheads. It doesn't make you add a bunch of people and stuff. Okay. Now, now we're talking about something that's really going to add to your. Um, so in those kind of examples, I, I'm a fan of diversity. But when, when you have people that are trying to do lots of little things, to me, that just creates chaos. And, and you, you create a lot of work for yourself and you're working your butt off. And at the end of the year, you look at your balance sheet and you think, well, what did I actually do? Right. <laughs> so, so that's what I too yeah. often see in, in diversity. Don't let it get away from you. I think a term that I've heard thrown around several times is enterprise creep. Beware of enterprise creep and, and making sure that you don't overcommit yourself beyond your core, core of your business. Because, you know, we have to, at some point, we can't ignore the core of our business and get layered extraneous enterprise. Yeah, I think you got it. I, I like businesses that do two or three things well and at scale. I, I kind of, that, that's my bias. You know, when you, when you see some, a business that's trying to do uh, 12 different things, uh, they're, they're probably not doing any of them particularly well. And, and probably very few of them are actually working at scale. Right. Well, something, oh, I guess nothing really comes to mind. I forgot what I was going to say. Um, <laughs> So we've been talking about the school a little bit. And, you know, the first time I went uh, to Ranching for Profit was in 2006. And I repeated the school with you as my instructor about a year ago. And, you know, the course has changed a lot. And I can even even kind of trace back to the, the mid 80s, the late 80s, the first time my dad went and then the late 90s when he went back again. And I can see a lot of the changes in the curriculum and the not just the curriculum. I mean, the core material is all still there. Most of it, you know, that, that Stan developed and Dave honed. But the question that keeps on my mind is, what would you say to the people in the past that have had a less than favorable experience at the school? I didn't know people like that existed. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, can I interrupt? Yeah. Um, when I went to school in Northern California, and I'd always heard about Ranching for Profit, and I actually did have some older rangers that I was networking with. And I, I just, re I did remember them saying negative things about it. And then when I did the course, um, you know, cause I did it with a group of six other people and, and we kind of did it just because we wanted to do it for like a team building thing and to learn what our ranchers were learning. And I kind of went in with the notion, like, I'm not really going to take anything away from this this week because of what I heard when I was in college and my mind was blown. So, I mean, one bad apple can't spoil it for the bunch. And I, I will say, you know, I was pleasantly surprised um, that it is, it was amazing. Like my husband's going to go as soon as he's done with med school. I, I appreciate that, CK. It, it, um, I, 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 I was halfway joking with you, Brian. Um, I, yeah. I, I do hear of, you know, it, it's more, I think people that have heard about it that, that have, 
this bias of, oh, ranching for yeah. Here, here's what they teach. They teach you that everybody should cabin May and they teach you that nobody should put a pay and they teach you that everybody should do this intensive grazing stuff. Right. And, and, and if that's all somebody gets out of six days, they want to be prescriptive, right? Their money. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so to, so to back up a little bit, I, I, we don't tell anybody they should cabin bay. We, we don't tell anybody they should stop making hay. In fact, if you if you look at your numbers, the ranching for profit way, you might find that your hay business is the profit driver of your whole ranch, and your cows are just right. getting in the way, right? So, so I, I don't think we. It, I would like to think that we don't offer prescriptions on on how you should ranch. Uh, you know, of course, we all have our biases. I have my biases. Alan Alan Crockett, one of our instructors, Dave Pratt. I mean, everybody's got their biases on things, and sometimes those biases come through. Um, but it, but at the core of it, so so the principles that, and you mentioned this, Brian, when you introduced it, the, the principles that Stan developed and that Dave mm -hmm. and that Dave perfected. Those principles are are the same curriculum that, that we're teaching today, and to me, that's really incredible that these guys were so far ahead of their time. I mean, Stan was such a leader in his time in in the '70s and '80s, and then David took that those principles and built a beautiful curriculum around them that that we all get to get to experience and teach. Um, and so, for me, it's just really an honor to to be able to share those. Um, you know, we we have updated the curriculum, um, and and really that's come from input from people that have been to the school or or those people in the EL that are learning, you know, new ways of looking at things and, and thinking about things. Um, Wally Olson has had a, a big impact on us in the last several years with with some of the ways he thinks about how to, how to value animals and how to look at those value relationships. And we've integrated that into the school in some ways. So, uh, yeah, I think the curriculum continues to adapt and I, I hope it does continue to adapt during my time uh, because, it, you know, it, anything that that doesn't change is, is going to become irrelevant over some period of time. Right. You know, I, I can say that when I went in 2006, Dave was my instructor. And as luck would have it, um, during that course was actually Alan Crockett's very first time instructing any part of the Ranching for Profit curriculum on his own. Um, and it's it's been interesting to see the changes and, and see how the course has developed. And I think a lot of us are really excited to see the energy you're bringing back to the program. Not that, not that it was lacking, it's just a different perspective. Yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, I think we all have had strengths, um, you know, it, it, through the different um, ownership that it's gone through. Um, you know, I, I think Stan was was really the creator uh, of of those principles and and that curriculum. And I and I think Dave's been kind of I think of him as the as the painter of the Mona Lisa, right? I mean, this uh, this curriculum is is an incredible piece of art in terms of an educational process. And I think a lot mm -hmm. of that goes to Dave. Um, you know, these the the flip charts that we build, a lot of those are are straight out of his mind. Um, and he he's the best um, curriculum developer I've ever had the opportunity to work with. And so what what I hope I can bring to it is um, you know maybe just a, a different perspective. I'm, I'm sure I'll have my own touch to add to it. Um, but I I really want to rely on the ranchers that are coming through the program and those people that are involved in EL uh, to help us continue to shape it. That that's kind of where I'm looking to is to is is to how these people are using this to change their lives and their business. So let, let's kind of continue down that track. And let's, let's maybe veer off a little bit on mental health. And hmm. that's, that's kind of a big thing now is, you know, we're, we're starting to talk about some of these mental health issues in ag and be a little bit open 
little bit more open about it. And uh, my wife and I were actually having this discussion the other night that, you know, in some ways, when you go to ranching for profit and you sit that table with the five other businesses, or even when you, you know, if you decide to continue on into executive link and you're sitting there with your executive link board, that's kind of almost a form of group therapy. And in order to be an effective participant, you have to put your ego in a box and leave it right outside. The- that, maybe not something those of us in agriculture are that skilled at doing, is it? <laughs> I think we can all work on it. And, yeah. you know, we can all work on it and we can all learn together. Yeah, I, I'm really glad you brought this up, Brian. Uh, to me, this is something that, that has been um, too easily ignored uh, among mm-hmm. people in agriculture for too long. And it is, it's, it's an absolute travesty about what's going on in, in um, agriculture. Um, and, and I really think about the, it's mostly the men in, in our business that struggle with this, you know, and, and it's that tough, macho, everything will be okay. You know, you'll get through it. Um, we don't talk about this kind of stuff. Right. And, and I think we're starting to, to see a change at that. Um, and, and we, we do talk about it at ranching for profit. And I think people, we don't talk about it till midweek, um, because I think we, we need to allow people to become comfortable, uh, with, with the people that they're sitting with and, and those kind of things before we can talk about these things that really require, as you said, a, a level, a level of vulnerability, uh, to, to start that conversation. But I think it's important that, you know, that we allow ourselves to be vulnerable to the people we trust so we can share some of these things that, you know, that we are worried about. And, and sometimes it's just, it's so intangible, like, you know, I'm just worried about the weather and the grass quality and the cows are going downhill over the, you know, four months. And it's sometimes it's very difficult to articulate some of those, especially to an outsider that doesn't have a perspective into your business. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, when I, I mostly think of these people that are managing multi-generational places, um, I mean, you're, you're kind of an example of that, Brian, you're, you're the, you're following a generation before you who, who I believe followed a generation before him, if I'm not. Um, and, and when things get tough, and, and that, and if that's the situation you're in, so many times it's easy to look and say, it's my fault. And it's the decisions that I made that are putting all this at risk that has come before me. And, and then mm-hmm. we start to turn inward and we start to put that self, that those things on top of ourselves. And, and it just, you know, at some point it, it can become too much. And, and I think what, when we can start having those conversations about it and, and really look inside the business, you can say, well, you know, you made reasonable decisions at that time with the things you had in front of you and, you know, stuff happens, droughts happen, market swings happen. And, and the best thing you can do as a manager is just learn from that stuff and move on. And, and I remember being in a, um, in an executive link meeting with Wally Olson and there was a young man in there and uh, this young man was, was putting all this stuff on him. He, he just had a, he bought some stockers that spring and the market had turned backward and, and he was probably looking at a $200,000 loss on, on these cattle. And, and he was just kicking himself over this thing. And Wally said to him, young man, the only thing that matters is what you do next. And, and I thought that is exactly what that young man needed to hear. Uh, because, you know, we, we can weigh on this stuff and we can look back and second guess it, but really the only thing that matters 
is what we do next. And, you know, today you've got this information, you've got these cattle on hand, you've got this much grass in front of you. What are you going to do? Let's make a decision and, and move forward. And, and you could just see kind of the weight come off of him and, and the ability to start. Okay. It, this, this is what we've, we've got to deal with. And so, I mean, you know, it, it is kind of a form of group therapy when you, when you look at it that way, cause that's the result it has. Um, but, uh, but yeah. Good. Thanks. Thanks for that. So I want to back up a little bit. You mentioned that you have about 80 acres there at your home place in Wheatland, or you never really did say we're at, obviously Wheatland, Wyoming, we get that. Uh, so you said you, you're running about 20 or 30 head and you've pushed that close to a hundred. Let's talk about that for a little bit. How did you get that done? Uh, just better grazing. <laughs> <laughs> End of story, right? Um, so easy. Yeah, yeah. So I'm lucky enough to have uh, some sub-irrigated ground uh, productive uh, areas that, that are that are going to respond that way right um what we did when we got a hold of it um it you know the people before us were great people uh, but they just didn't have the, the tools uh and i say tools the information and skills to manage grass um and so they they'd put animals in there in the spring and they'd leave them there till fall and they'd come pick them up so we had mm -hmm. places that that were heavily grazed and lots of bare ground and lots of annual weeds and and then when you got further away from water, you got to some parts of it that had, hadn't seen a grazing animal for probably three or four years. Um, so the first thing we did was, was we rested it all during the growing season for about two years. Uh, we had a lot of bare ground um, in, in the areas close to water. And now looking back on it, I don't know if we needed to rest it that long, but, but that was the decision. So we didn't take any cattle during the growing season. And then in the wintertime, I took in um, cattle from somebody near me that we just walked down the road and, and we grazed it uh, pretty hard all winter long and tried to get most of that plant material back onto the ground or in the belly of a beast into manure mm -hmm. and get that nutrient cycling happening. Uh, so after about two years of doing that, then, then we put in a, a, a nice uh, fencing and water system, um, actually used an NRCS equip project to help us do that. Uh, you know, spread the water out through it and, and allowed, we put in kind of a backbone system is, is how I, I would describe it. So it's a high tensile fence that runs down through the, a couple of lanes down through the middle of it. And it creates easy subdivisions that we can then split with high tensile wire, um, or sorry, with, with poly wire. When, when I, when we first designed that, I thought we, we would just divide it into permanent pastures and graze it through that way. But then I, I learned from Jim Garrish and some other people about the using poly wire to create the movable uh, temporary path. And so we started doing that. Um, Pretty soon I was doing one day uh, sets where, where we'd graze it one day, move on to the next and rest it until it was fully recovered. Usually in, in our area, that's a minimum of 45 days, sometimes as long as in the growing. Um, so then we started bringing in cattle and grazing that way. And in, in probably a year, we doubled the capacity with, uh, that we were grazing on that. Within a couple of years, we doubled it again. Um, and now I'd, I'd say we probably, um, so it's, it's incredible how when you get that soil, get some biology and uh, get those plants rooted, rooted well. Um, you know, we, st we still make mistakes on it. There's years when I graze it too hard. There's years when are not intensive enough with our management. We have undergrazing and overgrazing side by side. Um, and, and all my neighbors think I'm nuts, but I, I have a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> so, so you're in Wheatland. Tell us a little bit about the environment there in Wheatland. What kind of, what kind of forage you grow? What 
production is like. Sure. So, so Wheatland, Wyoming, if you look at us on a satellite map, uh, we're a green spot in, in a brown area. And uh, Wheatland is the largest privately owned irrigation district in the country. Uh, so there were some developers that came over and put this system in that canals and ditches, uh, you, you know, used to flood water across all, all this area that we call the Wheatland Flat. Um, so our, our place sits, if you're driving on I-25 through Wheatland, we're about a mile to the west of I-25, right, when you go through them. So we're in some of the more productive ground, uh, better soils and wheat. Uh, our, our precip is only about 13 inches a year, but uh, on, on the place that we're at, most of that, uh, on this subby place, uh, most of that is groundwater coming in. So, you know, if we take a backhoe out and dig down four or five feet and you come back in the morning, it's going to have a foot of water in the bottom of it. So it, it's pretty swampy stuff. Um, our forage base uh, on this place is mostly tall wheatgrass, which is a low quality, uh, fast growing plant. It's very similar to intermediate wheat, uh, but it but it outgrows intermediate wheat. It'll get you know six seven foot tall in some in some areas. So, uh, but it can get really coarse, and it's got a really high silica content in it. So, so managing quality on that grass becomes really important. If you keep it, um, be, you know, between uh, middle middle of your calf high, that that's about as far down as we want to graze it. And then if if you get animals in there when it you know, when it's uh, just above your knees, uh, that that's the way you want to keep that feed. So kind of man managing in that, uh, in that area. Um, and then we've got some swamp ground that's got, uh, you know, garrison, uh, some fescues, uh, bromes, uh, some of those kind of things. It's a more diverse mix in our, in our swamp. Uh, and then up on our, the place we're leasing now on the mountain, it's, it's a, it's a 7,500 foot. Um, you know, it's probably still 13 inch precip zone. Um, it, it's big country. Um, so a lot, really rough, a lot of rocky stuff. Um, and so, we're starting into developing some some fencing and water for that uh, for the coming years, but uh, that's gonna that, that's gonna be a totally different kind of grazing program than what we do on our on our wet meadows. So that grass, that that tall wheat grass, is that a native grass or is that an introduced? I'm pretty sure it's an introduced species. I I think so. This ground would have been all farmed at one time, and I'm pretty sure somebody came back in there and planted that. What would native grass there? Uh, so when you go out on the rangeland here, we're we're a lot of uh, needle and thread, uh, western wheatgrass uh, mixed in with some, um, you know, some of our warm season grasses are generally going to be the low growing species, blue grama, buffalo grass. Um, you get into some better managed stuff and, and you'll find some taller warm season grasses, uh, prairie sand reed, uh, big blue stem. Uh, but I'd say 70% of our forage base here is going to be cool season grasses. Well, good. So... I heard you say earlier you grazed pretty hard in the dormant season. You let it rest the the entire growing season and then grazed hard in the dormant season to get that litter covered down. So the question I keep getting, and I already know the I already know my answer, is do you hurt the grass plant by a hard graze when it's dormant? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so, so if we were being correct in our terminology, we would say severe grazing in the wintertime, right? So, so we're taking a, a lot of that plant material and either hoofing it off or chewing it off. Um, from a plant perspective, uh, plants are generally not harmed very much by by grazing in the true dormant season. So, when, and we say true dormant because if you actually get out there and look even sometimes into November, December, and into March, there's some, there's some active growth happening, right? Uh, so we got to be careful about, about that kind of growth, but, but, you know, frozen ground, uh, frozen plants that are truly dormant, um, 
you know, I, most of them don't feel that grazing very much in, in the in the dormancy. So um, there's a few exceptions to that in terms of some species. But uh, I think from a, a grazing management point, um, we can severely graze plants more easily in, in the dormant season than we can during the growing season. The thing that generally determines when you need to, how severe you can graze is, is animal condition. So you're usually limited more by, by what you can ask your animals to do. Uh, in terms of having a class of animal that you're willing to push a little bit more, um, that's generally going to be the more limiting thing. Now, now there, there's exceptions to everything. Softer ground, ground that's more prone to blow, you're going to want to leave more cover on. Um, but, uh, but, but in, in this kind of ground that I'm managing, it, it generally has almost a layer of ice on it over time, and so we we can we can grub her down pretty good. Animal condition is going to be the, the determining factor. Right. What, so, are, your, what are your thoughts? <laughs> well. Um... No, I, I agree with that. I think it's really hard to hurt a plant, uh, especially a native hardy perennial grass species plant or, or any of the other native pasture plant. I think it's really hard to hurt those with the dormancy. Um, and like you said, you know, this time of year, I'm getting a considerable amount of cool season grass growth. Anytime the daytime temperature gets up in the 50s, um, I get a nice flush in grass. My soil temperature stays, you know, stays fairly warm through the year. So we do get, do get some of that, you know, do get some of those green flushes through the year, and that really helps out the cattle. Uh, so you're in a bottom ground, you're on a floodplain, and not quite natural forage. So a, a topic that always comes up when you talk about high-density grazing is pugging and compaction. So in my experience and my soil types, which trend more towards a sandy or loamy soil, that's I believe that that's less of an issue than a more clay type soil. How do you feel about that? I would, I would agree. I think you've nailed it right on. Um, pugging, it, and I've, I've never pugged ground. <laughs> right, whatever. <laughs> We've all done it, right? Um, so we, sometimes you go back and you look at something and maybe you had them there at a heavy rain or maybe, maybe you left them there too long and something just happened, right? You come back and you look at that and it looks like somebody just tore it up and you kind of go, oh, shoot. Um, and then you move on. And, and usually following long rest, that ground looks healthier than before it was pugged is, is what I find. Now, the, the downside of that is it generally needs more rest after you pug it than if you hadn't. So, so like for me, when I'm on like my faster graze and I'm coming back within 45 days, if I happen to, to pug something up, I'll probably skip it in that next round. And, and it'll probably have, you know, 100 days, 120 days before it gets grazed again. And uh, it, it, then, then when you come back and look at it, you can almost see where the line is to where it was pugged and where it wasn't pugged. And where you pugged it, there's generally more diversity. Uh, those plants look like they're, they, they, I don't know, they just got a jump start, um, and it's pretty cool. Is, it, is that what you found? Yeah, that, that's very similar to what I saw. Um, I had a place where, where I had a lane. We were doing some high, high density strip grazing and we had a lane that was back to water. And this is back towards the end of May. Uh, we had several, several good rain showers, good rain events, and the cattle really tracked up that lane. And, oh, I was, I was pretty depressed about it there at the beginning of June, and I didn't think it, I didn't think it would recover very well. But you know, we're looking at a lane that's 14 feet wide and a couple hundred yards long on a, you know, on a ranch that's 7,000 acres. I mean, this is in a pasture that's 100 acres. Okay, so what do we got here? Like, not even a percent. So it's barely a hair on a gnat's bee hunt. Am I really going to worry about? It? No. Is it pugging? Is it compassion? Does it look ugly? Absolutely, yes. So I followed the advice one of the one of the hired hands my dad used to have, and just said, "Well, I don't like the way it looks. So I'm just not going to go look at it for a while and not dwell on it." 
And then I came back about uh, about five months later toward the end of the growing season, toward the end of the summer. And that lane where previously had been, you know, really short grass and, oh, there was some buffalo grass, some grama grass, but mostly it was like old world blue stem types, Caucasian and yellow. And the amazing thing is, is that area that was so bugged up and just torn up with the cattle when it was wet. Now that area is six to seven foot tall, big blue stem grass. And just like you said, you can see the line, you know, there's still a line on the one side where the, where the backbone fence is, but where we had the, where we had the lane fence and where we had the strip fences and still see those lines. And I think. So, I mean, you're, you're going to make mistakes in this grazing stuff and, but nature is resilient. And sometimes those mistakes end up being uh, beneficial. And, you know, and, and there's something to be said about, you know, having, having flexibility in your operation to be able to try some of these and be able to fail small and it not take you under. So I think it's kind of important to talk about that, you know, yeah, the whole ranch is 7,000 acres. And when I started getting into strip grazing and doing, you know, a lot more intensive management and high frequency moves, my stockmanship skills improved rapidly. My forage, uh, my forage evaluation skills improved very rapidly. My physical health improved pretty much improved a lot too. But what I'm getting at is I just have, I had a pasture that was uh, like 250 and that makes it about 3% of the range. And the, the power of the strip grazing and the intensive management is we figured out that that three and a half percent of the ranch brought in like almost 8% of them. So when you look at it that way, you know, that's just from the grazing efficiency and that's not, you know, really getting too deep into it and, and stacking the biology and, and stacking the production and driving that system even higher. So I'm really excited as, you know, for this year, um, which will be year two of strip grazing or be the third year of strip grazing. I'm really excited right. to see some of the new, some of the changes and some of the new, new plant colonies coming in. Um, switchgrass has been fairly rare on the ranch. Um, and in the last several years since the fires, strip grazing, we used to grow a bunch of strip, grow a bunch of switchgrass. And I'm not sure if that's more due to environmental factors or if that's due to my grazing management, but I'm trying to eliminate those variables things out. Let me, let, me, uh, let, let me take this conversation because because we're kind of sitting here grass nerding out on some of the stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, we maybe you, ought to turn it back down to some but, basics. But but I want to I want to connect the dots here because uh, we started the conversation with starting ranching and and how do you start ranching and, and i've mentioned that a lot of people come into ranching hey i, I want to be a rancher i want to own a ranch and i want to run cows right and and i think the focus oftentimes is on the animal and yeah and you know and you, and you have people what are you getting into ranching? oh because i love animals and i love being outside okay well you know but and and here we are grass nerding out and talking about grazing stuff <laughs> Um, so I, I guess I'm going to, I'm going to put that on me. And, and I told you guys, I went to, um, animal science. I, I got two degrees in animal science, you know, had a, had a master's of nutrition. And I remember when I got out of, uh, graduate school and, and here we are in Wheatland and I'd actually even done a year towards my PhD. So I, I felt like I actually knew something. Right. And I was placed in the office in Wheatland and they handed you a phone and they give you a desk and they say, go do something cool. We'll check back with you in a year. Is kind of what the instructions mm -hmm. are. Right. And so here I'm sitting there and I think, well, I want to, I want to help ranchers, right. I, I want to go out and help these guys run their ranches better and be more profitable. 
And I know all this stuff about nutrition, about, you know, genetics and about reproduction. And so the phone would ring and, and some guy would feel sorry for the new extension agent in the office and invite him out. And I'd jump out there and, uh, and I, we'd, we'd say, okay, let's go see the ranch. And so he'd throw me in the pickup and, and we'd drive out to where the cows are. And I remember doing this a lot of time, you know, you roll your window down, you drive through the cows, you look at them, maybe you jump out and walk through these cattle and you talk about their genetics and you look at body condition score and you look at all these things that you look at and then you jump back in the pickup and you go home and you go back to the headquarters, you have lunch, you talk for a while and you go home. And, and I mm-hmm. felt like I'd seen the ranch, you know, when I, when I'd done this and it's the same way as if, as if you were going to, a farmer was going to invite you out to their farm and, and all they did in the farm is they walked out to the machinery shed and you open the doors of the machinery shed and you looked at the yeah. tractors and the combines and you went, yep, there's the farm. And then you closed the doors <laughs> of the machinery shed and, and you went and had lunch and then went home and you said, yeah, I saw the farm. So, I mean, I, I think for some people listening to this, they're, that are getting new into ranching. They might be thinking, well, why don't these people stop talking about nerdy stuff like grasses and start talking about cattle and what kind of cattle you run and what kind of genetic program you have? But I want to bring the conversation back because what what I realized when I started being around people who were better than I, smarter than I, knew what drove ranches and what, what really made the bottom line is they didn't see the ranch from the livestock, they started to see the ranch from from the forage resource base and and what those forages. I mean, I mean, if you really think about ranching, what it is is we're in the business of capturing sunlight, tapping into the exactly. biology in the soil, and and turning that into something that we can harvest with a grazing. And and so often, all we think about is what color that combine is, and mm-hmm. and we don't even, we don't even understand what what crop we're growing. Um, so I mean, yeah, we're sitting here grass nerding out, but I think the reason is is because we've developed an understanding that, that that is the economic engine that runs ranch. And, and so what we're doing is we're popping the hood up and, and we're having a look underneath that thing. And we're saying, how, how is this engine running? How can I help tune it up uh, so that it captures more sunlight, captures more biology and cycles those things around. So. That's great. You know, and that is a good point. You know, a lot of times people get caught up. I want a ranch. I want black cows or I want red cows or I want Hereford cows. And they, don't know three different kinds of grass that are on their property. Yeah. And it's I spoke important. with Aaron Berger and he, you know, he's your friend uh, that you worked with for a long time, Dallas. And he was like, I would be happy if the rangers in my area could at least that identify at least four types of forages that are growing naturally on their ranch. If they could do that, I'd be happy. And then once we do that, we'll put a price on those forages and then, then they can actually know the value of, of the production of what their forage is giving them. Yeah. Yeah, Aaron's right. Aaron's spot on. I mean, just yeah, I don't care if you can name them all and know their scientific names, but if you can walk out there and say that's something that that I want to see more of, and that's something I want to see less of, and then here's how my management is going to drive that. I think that's that's the key. And you don't have to completely nerd out on grass. You just have to know a little bit, <laughs> know enough to be dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Uh, I think Burke Tykert said it best. He said, when I started in this industry, I loved my cow. And the more I mm. learned, or yeah, the more I learned that I learned to love the land. And then I learned some more and I learned to love the soil. Yep. I, I remember that. He he wrote that article and, and part of his thing was there's a new paradigm for ranching. Soil first, then plants, 
and then animals and, and thinking through it in that sequence. And, and Burke's kind of had the same, you know, real, I mean, he was a, he was a livestock guy from the word go. Right. I mean, that was, he was trained and he was a geneticist, I think is how he was trained. Yeah. And, and here right. he is making those statements. So we, what a, what a pillar of wisdom that guy is. Yeah. I hope we can get him on the show someday. I, I think that. But you can. I bet you can. He's a, he's very he's very generous. So probably just take a quick email. So if you could pick up your operation, I mean not necessarily the the ranching for profit side of your business infrastructure, but if you could go anywhere in the world and ranch, if you could pick up your ranch and go anywhere in the world and ranch. Where would you go? Why? Oh man, what a cool question. Um, I, I'd only want to ranch a few months of the world in each of these locations, right? The, uh, I want, I want the my cows, cows, Florida rotation. Yeah, yeah. I want my I want my ranch moving. Um, uh, we we've got some uh, a lot of clients down in Texas, and I love to go down into Texas, South Texas in February, and and then as you come up into Central Texas, March and April, and then and then just kind of come up into the into those areas. So, uh, you know, I I get a look at ranch numbers and uh, and ranch situations all over the U.S. into Canada, some into Mexico. Uh, I've been to Australia for for several months. We had the opportunity to take the family over there and and stay there for a time period, and that. Was was awesome. And, and really I could ranch in any of the places I've visited and be very happy doing it. Um, they, each of those places have unique challenges. And some people say, well, right, where's the, where's the most profitable place to ranch? And, and I think that's not really asking the right question. Um, because if, especially when you start looking at the land investment and, and overlaying that, right. So you can have very different initial startup costs if, if that's part of the plan. Um, but, mm -hmm. but the ranches in, in, you know, in the Eastern part and over towards the corn belt, you know, so, I mean, there it's hard to find contiguous land. So a lot of those guys, guys are running yeah. like 50 acres here and Small. 50 acres there yeah. and, and putting together a decent grazing program with those kind of challenges is, is really tough. Um, and then you get into, you know, the part of the country where we're in and, and further North into Montana and, and there's some real benefits to be in there. Uh, you got powerful grasses and, but, but, you know, dealing with winters uh, presents some of its challenges. Uh, you get into the Great Basin and, and you know, there's uh, land costs generally goes down, uh, land acquisition, those things. Um, but the forage species are not near as, uh, as you, you know, so many more annual grasses in there. And then all the government regulations and a lot of that's built around government land uh, as your ranching base. And, and I'm not sure I'd want to what those challenges, uh, you know, a lot of those guys that have to put up with that. It, it's very disempowering uh, from a, from a, you know, when you don't, aren't, aren't responsible for making those decisions. Uh, so, but, uh, but then I've, we've also been on the coast of Northern California and I thought that was some beautiful. Of the most, oh my right. gosh. Wow. Could I, could that be awesome? If we were just talking about like a growing season and the climate, I think California just offers a great opportunity to, to raise cattle um, and just have, have forage for two growing seasons, right. For the most part. And I think it's just, it's just it's so sad that that just, it's really it's hard to make that work because of regulations and land prices and just everything. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to get hate mail, but I'm going <laughs> to say it anyway. <laughs> All right. California <laughs> is probably one of the most beautiful places on earth that I've it ever has, been to. I mean, we have... Yeah, but it's just the it problem is it's full of Californians yeah. and they ruined it. <laughs> hey, I'm I understand it. I'm from California. I think most of us understand what you're saying too. 
And I think it just, it, it comes from population density, but, but it is, it's cool. Like where I'm from in the Valley. So I live in the Valley, very fertile land. Um, it's all irrigated pastures for the most part. And then you have rangeland. We have these huge giant sequoias that are only two hours away. Actually it's an hour away. And then the, the coast is two hours away. So in one day I can go to the mountains and back and to the coast and back. And that's unreal. Where else can you do that really? Um, and see I, like every crop zone ever. And I too. know how long it takes to go see water or go see mountains, man. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm in I'm in the Flint Hills of Kansas now, so yeah. <laughs> it's a different kind of pretty over there. It's pretty. It's okay. It's I love my Kansas ranchers. So no knock, no knock on Kansas at all. Just it's just a different environment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so Dallas, you mentioned you like to travel around a lot. Uh, you visit ranches down in Texas. How do you get that? How do you travel around so much? Where do you find time to do that with oh. moving cattle daily and, <laughs> and putting on all these schools? Oh, you know, I, I think you're letting me talk about one of my passions, yes. life, which, which yes. is which is a, aviation. Um, I I started flying airplanes uh, oh two and a half three years ago, and uh, I've just completely sunk uh, all my free time into it. So. Uh, I, I love, uh, you know, just today I went out and flew around with a buddy uh, over lunchtime. And um, so I, I, enjoy, I enjoy flying airplanes. And so I've got a lucky enough that uh, I was, I found there was a Bonanza, 1952 Bonanza that was kind of abandoned at our airport here in Wheatland. And so a buddy of mine helped me and, and we rebuilt it uh, under the supervision of, a, of an aircraft mechanic here. And uh, so I've got that airplane that I used to, to do quite a bit of traveling with. So it, it makes it a lot more enjoyable. And uh, sometimes it saves me time. Other times uh, it, it costs me time, so. <laughs> yeah. Like when you is have it, to borrow a truck to common, go to... Yeah. Go ahead, is TK. it pretty common in like in your area for a lot of people to like, fly and stuff on their own because you're just in such a remote location because like my ranchers in nebraska are like oh if you get stranded in denver just let me know i will come pick you up in my plane i was like what what world are we living in <laughs> I so would not say, i'm just I would wondering not say it's no. it, okay it's, not, it's like, not like alaska you know you get up into alaska and i think everybody flies just like we drive pretty you know? common okay yeah, yeah, sounds but, like uh, i need to travel around with you yeah <laughs> Let's get stranded in Denver. <laughs> so what what's the latest uh what's the latest notch in your belt as a pilot? Now? Oh, see, I, I did uh, a tailwheel endorsement. Uh j just just finished that here uh, a month ago. Uh so a uh, there's a guy at our Wheatland Airport who likes to buy airplanes and he buys kind of old stuff, you know, that's in various stages of disrepair. So his latest purchase was uh, a 1947 48, I believe, a Cessna 140, which is uh uh, one of the original kind of tail dragging type airplanes. And, and so I didn't have, uh, you got it, it, to, to fly an airplane that's a tail, tail wheel. So it has the two big wheels in front, right? And the, and the back sits down on that, on that little tail wheel. Uh, to fly an airplane that has a tail wheel, you have to have a special endorsement to do that. And uh, so I started training to learn how to fly that. And that, that's been so much fun. That airplane is just a blast to fly. So we've been, been flying that one all over. And, uh, and so I got my tail wheel endorsement here just a month ago. Cool. That's really neat. I'll, I, I did get a, I did get a chance to see Dallas's Bonanza. Maybe someday I'll get up to Wheatland and you'll take me. Absolutely, <laughs> love to. Love to. So I'm okay. Is there, is there a myth about you or uh, about the 
about the school or about the industry in general you'd like to take an opportunity to debunk? Um, yeah, I think that the school, we've, we've talked about that a little bit and that uh, people hear it, that it's prescriptive. And, and I think that that's one thing that, uh, that I'd like to just spend maybe a little more time emphasizing is, um, and I think a good way to do that is, is the understanding the differences between principles and practices, right? And mm -hmm. and so a principle is like it's it's a law. It's like a rule that works all the time. And and I've heard Alan Crockett describe it as principle is like the law of gravity, right? So the gravity is going to be the same whether we're here in uh, you know the, the states or whether we're in Australia or whether we're you know wherever in the world we are, gravity is going to work. And and our school is built upon and principles like there are only three ways to increase profit. You know, everything is either an overhead, it's either going to be in related to decreasing overheads, improving gross margin per unit, or increasing. And figuring out which of those three things should be the focus area for your business is going to help you increase profit when, when you solve that and then address it. Uh, when we talk about grazing principles, uh, we talk about rest for the grass, you know, allow mm -hmm. those plants to fully recover between grazing events. And, and now your definition of fully recover, that can be debated all day long. But, but I think everyone would agree that after a plant has some kind of harm to it, a stress, whether that's grazing or a fire or grasshoppers. So after that plant has had that harm, it, that plant's going to be healthier if we allow it to recover. And, and that principle holds true no matter where in the world you are. Right? And, and then we talk about the principle of matching stocking rate to carrying capacity. Right? So, so let's make sure that the number of mouths is, is not exceeding the amount of forage that we're growing. Right? And, and that's a principle that's going to hold true. So, so the school is based on, on these foundational principles. Now, the practices, how, how Brian applies those principles in, on his ranch in Kansas is going to be different from how I'm going to apply those principles to this ranch I'm leasing uh, at 75, 7,800 feet up, up in the mountains west of Wheatland. They're, the application in, of those principles, the, the, way we, the way we apply them is going to look different. But the principles work. The principles work no matter where we are. And, and so I think so many people say, well, somebody went to ranching for profit and they came home and did this. So, so that's what they're teaching there. Okay? And, and somebody might have misheard it. Uh, they, they might look over the fence and say, well, that person's crazy for doing what they do. Uh, but, but really what we do is we, we put out these foundational principles, which we've been teaching for almost 40 years now. Um, I mean, so if they were wrong, we would have been called on the carpet by now. Right? <laughs> so I, I stand firm on these principles. Uh, but the way that, that people choose to apply them, that, I mean, that, that's where your choices, your, your personal life, your, your value system, how you want your ranch to be, all that stuff has to get overlaid on that. Um, so I guess that's the biggest myth. And I, I hate it when people say we, we drank the Kool-Aid, right? Because there's no Kool-Aid to drink. There, there's understandings is, is what they are. And I think when we take these things out and look at them, um, you know, you're, you're going to see, see those understandings and be, question. How. And, that, and, you know, that's a great perspective. That, and we're sitting here, you know, obviously you own the school. I've graduated CK's. Mm -hmm. We both definitely, definitely believe that it's a so. What do you think, what do you see the biggest, what do you see the biggest weak point is in your, so, I mean, I mean, there, there's things coming to mind that I wish we could do more it of could be in, better in the school. Yeah. balance. I suppose it's a question of balance because you can't really add much without time. Yeah. And that's kind of where I was going with that is we've, 
it, it was several years ago, Dave and Alan, uh, when, when Dave's still in the company, Dave and Alan and I spent um, three or four days up in Mendocino County on the coast of California. And we, we took the entire Ranching for Profit School curriculum apart and, and we examined each piece. And then we decided where, where we, what goes back in and in what order does it go back in and what kind of new things mm -hmm. do we need to include? And, and after going through that, we, we had a lot of these discussions, right? And I mean, there's definitely some things that, that we feel fonder about in the curriculum than other things. There's, there's sometimes when we get to a part of the school and I kind of go, ah, oh, this is my least favorite part to teach her you know, things like that. Um, but that's when you make other people try it, that's right. <laughs> Brian, why don't you get up here and lead this discussion? <laughs> um, so I, you know, I, what we hear from people is they wish we spent more time on the economics. Um, and, and that they say, that's why we came to the school is we wanted to, to, to really, you know, get, get really good at doing these numbers. And, and we move on from the economics about day three of the school. And, and that's when we move to grazing and, and ecology and integrate nutrition and reproduction and drought manage, management, all, the, all those things in there. Um, and, and I can understand that perspective of they wish they wish we've spent more time on those things. But but here's the thing as I look at that is we've taught you all the foundational pieces that, that you need to know to apply it. And, and it's, you're not going to, I've heard Dave say this, and you're not going to learn to swim by reading a book about swimming. You're not going to learn to do economics by just having me stand up there and, and teach it to you. you you've mm -hmm. got to eventually jump in the pool. And, and the way for, you know, so when people are thinking that, that, my answer to them is we'll start doing it, you know, start applying it. Uh, so take these things we've taught you and, and put your business into it. And then when you have roadblocks, you know, we give them the, the reference manual. We've got, now got RFP online for them to go to that'll, that'll help get them unstuck. Um, so I guess that if, if, if we're going to challenge it, the, uh, one of the weaknesses is people probably don't have a high degree of comfort with, uh, with the economics when they leave the school. Um, but, but I have found that if people have the self-discipline to apply what they've taught, uh, that, that they're going to be extremely successful in, in implementing that because we have given them the pieces of it. Have you made anybody cry on economics day lately? <laughs> I didn't realize. People cried. People cry. That's that thing. Um, Maybe the, later. The crying would be in the classroom when they were putting in their own numbers. Is is when that was going to happen. So probably not during the teaching of it during the day. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, the facilitators at DL we have a little score sheet and we get points every time we make somebody cry. So. Um, really? No, <laughs> I'm kidding. I love it. <laughs> well, I can know how many points I have on that one. <laughs> I just left that Alexander meeting. Ten points for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we do not. That's I'm teasing. <laughs> oh, that's great. So, so what are some things that inspire you? Inspire you to to feel like your best self or your best? Wow, this is getting deep, man. Um, you know, I, I really feel I was trading emails with somebody uh, who just went through the school in Cheyenne yesterday, and they'd, they'd given me some nice compliments in that about about the way the school was run and the teaching. And I was I was thanking them for those comments. And and I, my response was, I really feel like this is my mission in life is to is to help uh, agriculturalists, people that are that are managing the land uh, to help them be able to save their own businesses. It's not, it's not my job to save your business, but if, but if I can give you, give you those skill sets 
and and help maybe just change your thinking, right? Because the real change of ranching for profit happens between your ears. It's right. not about it's not about having the do having the economic model or or knowing how to set up a grazing cell. That that's not that's not the real change that happens. It's about the way you see your business and and your mm-hmm. relationship to your business, right? That that's that's the change that happens. Um, so if if I can help people change that perspective, change their paradigms. Uh, to then come back at their business with uh, with fresh motivation, you know that that's what keeps me going. And you know, when you, it's it's really cool when you have people email you, um, or we get to be a part of their part of the change through EL, and and you really see that man, their their life is better. Um, you know, they're they're living, um, you know, more comfortable life. Uh, they're able to mm-hmm. give to give to things that they care about. Um, you know, the ranch is going to be successful to another generation. Uh, you know, I, I think that's what that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. You know, we're kind of dancing around something that's important and is a big part of the class. You guys do spend, I mean, we talked about, you know, you spend time on economics, on grazing, you spend time on ecology, but there's also a very significant amount of time spent on and focusing on quality of life. Yeah, you want to talk that's about been that? huge for me. What, what CK, give us some examples when, when you said. Yeah, um, so, uh, one of the exercises we did was, uh, working on the business and working in the business. And even though I don't have a ranchery thing, but I am helping ranchers daily. And so I think one thing, thing I've had to realize, like in my, even in my personal life, I have to prioritize my time when I want things to get done instead of just doing the low level things of checking my emails and, and making sure everyone's been responded to, making sure everyone's happy. I have to go and make sure like for me, I spend, uh, my first 20 minutes every morning before I log onto my computer, just my coffee sitting at, at the, at the desk doing nothing, just kind of, you know, if that makes any sense, just like preparing my mindset for the day, um, it's helped me and like planning the whole week out, which I, I know it's only like, what did you suggest two days a week or something like that? Not that we're prescribing anything, but I did think about like high level stuff, not just jumping into the work, doing the menial task, but like actually setting the high IQ stuff for the first thing in the morning. And then I realize I do depreciate at the end of the day. Like right now, like it's my weekend. I'm ready to be done. So um, if we could wrap this up, guys. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. You're looking at beer 30, huh? <laughs> no, but, but that is something that if I have an important meeting or like someone that I really want to close or, you know, join the platform, I said that for Monday or Tuesday, first thing in the morning. I definitely won't do it Thursday or Friday because I realize that those are days of the week that maybe I'm not going to be performing my best. So I um, I know I explained that too much, but uh, that is something that I took away from Ranches for Profit. Cool. That's good stuff. Yeah, we, we do. We spend uh, we spend quite a bit of time on the people side of the business. Um, there, there's an interesting question that, that I like to ask when I have a room full of ranchers. And, and I ask them, um, think of somebody or, or people that you know that are no longer ranching. And, and let's think about what caused the demise of that ranching business. Uh, was it that, yeah. that there, was, there was no way um, economically to, to put together you know, a plan that would economically work? You know, it was just completely impossible. Or, or was it because the, the weeds all took over and the soil all blew away, right? And the ranch was, it, nothing was left, right? Um, or, or, or the grazing wasn't right, uh, you know, and they just, they just couldn't get any animal performance or anything like that. Or was it because the people couldn't get along, uh, distrust 
brewed, uh, you know, you started to have people pulling in different directions and, and it's almost always comes that the, the things that pull businesses apart are almost always people related. And, and then on the converse of that, the things where businesses really succeed well are almost always because they got the people pieces right. Um, so we, we spend quite a bit of time on the, on the people side and, you know, working on the business, working in the business is one of those things, uh, you know, d- doing the things that, that really need to be done and, and being disciplined enough to, to find the time to do it. Uh, but another thing we, we talk quite a bit about is are the bigger picture items like mission and vision. Uh, you know, what is the purpose mm-hmm. of your business? Why do you do it? You know, where are we headed and create that shared vision among, among the key players. And that, that's really what keeps people coming back and, and bringing their best to any kind of effort are, are having those things. And, uh, and then we, we, throughout the week, we slip in some, some real tools that, that people can use to drive their businesses forward. And I mean, all these tools are based on a lot of the popular management books, you know, whether it's uh, crucial conversations or seven habits or, uh, you know, uh, E-Myth or, or all those things that we draw on. Uh, but, but hopefully when people leave the school, uh, they go home and, and start applying these tools to decision making in their business and 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 find that, that through that they get more clarity on where they're headed that that people have more buy-in because yeah. of decision making. Yeah. I think uh so I think one thing that I've also realized is one thing you said is be not you said this now, but begin with the end in mind. And I think that just correlates to your mission. Like what is your mission? What are you guys working on? What is your goal? So like if you're um a cow calf operation, you're going to have calves every year, hopefully less than that. Right. And so I think that um, one thing that's really helped me too, is you've said, you, you know, if you want to be profitable, you need a plan for profit. And I think that was, that was a, a huge aha moment for me because I was just thought, well, if I, if I get lucky, I'll be profitable. And it's like, no, that's, that's not the mindset we should have going into this. So um, what do you think? Do you think other ranchers finally resonated with that too? When we talk about mission and vision. Yeah, they have that, that profit target is a, is a pretty powerful thing. And when people apply that, it's, it's amazing how many times you can hit it. I, I've even found it in my own life, in my own business. Um, you know, when, when I sit down, I, I, when we start running a year here with Ranching for Profit, I, I have a target in mind and this is what we want to hit. And then we build the mm-hmm. business based on that. Uh, you know, how, how many schools are we going to do? How many people do we want to have in the EL? Um, you know, how many workshops are we going to do this year? What, what's, what does it look like? And, and it's built around uh, that profit target. And, and you can do the same thing in an ag business instead of, you know, most people just say, okay, we're going to do what we do this year. And we hope there's going to be something left at the end. And, and that's not a way to yeah. do business. You, you start with the end in mind, like you said, CK, and, and let's build that profit target and then work backwards from there and, and design a business that will achieve that. I think that's something really important that a lot of people miss. They just think that profit is what's left of the year and profit is something budgeted for in the beginning of the year. Counted. Did, uh, you were part of EL when we did the Profit First book, weren't you, Brian? No, I don't. I, I don't oh, think I was. Were, okay, that, that was a fun deal. We, we did it as a continuing ad at Executive Link. And uh, some of your listeners might enjoy uh, getting that book. It's, it's a book called Profit First. And we, we sent it to all the Yale members and then we had a discussion on it. And what he has you do is he actually has you set up five bank accounts. And, and there's one bank account where all the income lands. And, and then from that bank account, you allocate that income to these remaining four accounts. Um, and it, you can you can apply it in several different ways, but the five accounts are kind of the core ones. Uh, and one of those accounts is called profit. 
And so what he has you do is you pull your profit right off the top before you start allocating to these other bank accounts. And, and then one of those bank accounts is called um, your operating expense, OPEX. And so you run your business, mm -hmm. you run your business out of OPEX. And it's based on the, uh, on the theory and, and he, uh, Parkinson's law is what he called it. And he said, Parkinson's law is that you will spend money as long as there's money to spend. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> and we, everybody can think about this in their own Guilty. life. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, when your bank account bumps uh, up, you kind of have this idea of, yeah, you know, and now you kind of walking through and all of a sudden this thing that felt too expensive a few months ago, you know, you're pulling the trigger on it. Look and, at those cows over here. Yeah. <laughs> how about that set of Longhorns uh, or Corian days, Brian? Um, so so his the, the philosophy on this is that you set up these accounts and you stick that money in there. And the only account you can look at is this OPEX account. And, and that's what you run your business up. And, and then lo and behold, at the end of the year, when you get there, you've got your profit set aside. And uh, the other accounts are um, owner's comp. So you move your compensation as an owner. And that's what you write your paycheck out of every month is, is that account. And that, and that goes to you. And then the other account is a tax hold account. So you've got money set aside and protected uh, to pay your tax. Good advice. That's, uh, that's kind of almost a Dave Ramsey. It is. It's very similar similar to his envelopes where you get you do the envelope budgeting. So it's just envelopes with bank accounts. Yeah, bank accounts. Yeah, that's cool. Same same theory. So I'm not going to ask you who you'd have dinner with because we just did that one last week with Ariel. But uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. No, no I, I'll, I'll leave it. I, I was going to stoop too low, and I'll I'll, I'll stop. <laughs> there's, there's always the after show. So. Dallas, I'm, I'm just going to put you in charge. What's the first change you're going to make to start making the world a better place? Uh, um, I'm, I'm just going to keep doing my thing, man. I, I think if, uh, if, if we help one rancher at a time, um, you know, we, we will have, have met our mission. And, and our, our, the mission of RMC isn't to change the world. Um, we're, we're not out there to save the world. Uh, we're out there to help individual ranchers save their ranches. And, and so if that's what we can do, we've met our mission. So, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to try to be a, a good husband to my wife and a good dad to my Awesome. I love it. I can't wait to, uh, to be a part. No, that's not right. Um, I'm enjoying watching your success. And, uh, I think the whole community is excited for you to be at the helm of RMC for profit, seeing how you, how you put your own unique stamp on the curriculum and the program and develop it. So um, we'll turn it over to you. So this is the part of the show where you get to ask us questions. All right. Uh, let's, let's play around with this. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to get right into some of the, the deeper stuff. Um, Brian, you, you brought up some, the mental health thing and the piece of that. And I've been thinking a lot about that in, in agriculture and the people that I get to work with. Um, I mean, what are some of your thoughts on, uh, on struggles that you've seen people have? Um, how are they, you know, the, this prideful group in agriculture that, that, that we, uh, you know, so often it's just the sho shove it under the rug. We have a really lumpy rug. Um, but what's been your experience with that? I guess I'll just, I'll just open it up that way. Ooh, I'm probably not a very good guy to ask because, um, oh, wow. I'll say this resources, um, resources in rural America are very hard to come by, you know, qualified yeah. therapists, um, you know, the, there's a definite need. Uh, for qualified therapists, qualified family therapists to help some of us work through succession issues or, you know, conflicting personality issues. Um, you know, that help is really difficult to get out here, um, you know, with 
with Zoom and high-speed internet, you know, it's more available for some, but still, you know, those, those kinds of professionals just don't really exist, really reachable, or they're on the wrong side of a state line and they don't have, they don't have governmental permission to practice their trade because of a line on them. Um, and I think also it is, you know, because of some of the traditional culture surrounding agriculture that, you know, a lot of the pioneers and a lot of the original farmers and ranchers that came to the American West came out here because they wanted to be independent, because they wanted to make their own way and not rely on anybody else. And some of that attitude is carried over and through the generation that, you know, we think that we know this and we got this and we don't need any help that, you know, that the way we've been taught to do it is the best way. To some extent, our egos get in the way and we need to put ego aside and be willing to be challenged on our production practice, be willing to be challenged um, on the things that we've been doing. Are we doing them right? Or is there a better way? And, you know, kind of continuing the conversation, um, you know, I, I can see where it's really difficult for a young person to be able to have some support, to want to try something, to go out and you know, try some of these paradigm challenging practices that we talk about here on this podcast or that you guys talk about that you lead people to discover ranching for profit or that Clay Connery talks about on working cows. You know, there's not a lot of support for that, you know, so where do these young people go to talk about some of these ideas? They can't go to the coffee shop co-op because they're going to run into the same problem that I am with paradigms, people not willing to be different. So I, it's a, it's a thorny issue to tackle and it's, it's complex, but I see that there's a positive direction um, as far as my, you know, through the last year of COVID, you know, we've gotten a lot of attention in the ag sector, you know, even mental health, the dairy farmers, and, and there's ultra high suicide rates. It, it got some press attention. And I think there's at yeah. least some conversation going about mental health. Um, Jason Meadows has a great podcast. I'm going to be on that ag state of mind. And he centers on, you know, talking about some of these emotional and ego issues in ag. And CK, do you have any experience or, or thoughts on that? I, I just, I think there's a lot of, especially with, you know, I'm one of these young, newer people in the industry. And I actually, I didn't come from an ag background either. And I uh, finally, I think it took me wow, six years to get confidence. And so I did struggle with being a valid member in the community, even though I, I knew a lot and I had garnered a lot of experience from, from failing at things and also being successful at things. And so I think, uh, you know, that's the main reason for this podcast too, Brian, is we're, we're trying to, in Dallas, but Brian and I want to create this community with listeners and people who are going to join the show to be able to, to be vulnerable, but not be judged. And that, that we can all learn from that because I think that we don't, we don't really have a place like, you know, COVID, we can't go to conventions, we can't, you know, sit and have drinks and then finally let down our guard and actually talk about what, what's what been going on in our operation. And I think it does take quite a few touch points with, with ranchers and other people that are outside their community um, before they're able, they really trust someone. Um, and like, even with me, when I meet new ranchers, you know, I could be working with them for six months. And then finally, they tell me this huge bomb of like, yeah, well, this is actually the dynamic we're, we're dealing with. And we're trying to accomplish this goal here. And I'm like, oh, I wish, you know, I could have been able to support you sooner through this. Um, please let me know how I can help best. And, and I think, you know, Brian, you and I have been kind of 
we worked together for years and didn't even talk to each other, right? Because, and it wasn't until Poshmap was being sold and getting a new company. And then I went and visited your ranch that you and I really became close. So it's like, how do we build a bridge for those things for us to connect with other people and, and um, kind of, you know, what, what do you say? We're a minority brand. So I think we, we do need to, yeah, we need to, you know, all be very aware that, that it's, it's probably all 2% of us that are having mental health issues and it is okay to talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you guys being open for that. I, so, I mean, I, I, I don't have any personal experience uh, with, with those kind of struggles, but I have a lot of the people who I look up to the most. I mean, some of these ranchers that are doing incredible things and, and are, you know, it, so some of the people who I look up to the most um, are struggling. And, and then as I look out uh, further, I, I see it. It's so common. Um, and so I really think we need to start normalizing the conversation around it. Yeah. And, and so that, uh, you know, it, it's the, the stigma starts to go away. So, so I, I appreciate that. So, so let's pull it up uh, from, from there to um, maybe I, I want to ask you guys, uh, I mean, you guys get to see and talk to a lot of people that are leading in, in agriculture and ranching. Uh, what are some commonalities as you look to people that are, that are pushing and, and, and kind of leading. Um, what are some commonalities in that group? They can deal with criticism. They, they yeah. can deal with criticism That's from a good one. the people that are afraid of change. I, the last several episodes we've had, and I don't, I don't want to give too much away, but, uh, you know, we've had some really fantastic guests. I mentioned Ariel Greenwood. We've had Macaulay Kincaid, uh, a guy named Hawes Magaray, butcher at this time. Uh, another friend nope. of mine named Michael Kinsey, and we've had Mike Calicrate on, and they've just been fantastic guests. And you know, you know Mike, <laughs> you know he's he's one of the old war horses. I mean, he's been there, he's been in the trenches, he's fought the fight. He's you know he's taken taken the Packers to the Supreme freaking Court. And you know some of these other guys, uh, the first three people that we had all, that we're going to have on our podcast after Clay in episode zero, so episodes one, two, and three there's about 10 years total of, of experience. So, you know, we really, I think we're, we're doing a good job of getting some of these stories out and, and trying to build a good community that's willing to be open and vulnerable and talk. Does anything jump to mind for you, CK? What are some commonalities? I think they all just want to have a better life. Like at the end of the, end of the day, they, they aren't, um, they aren't, you know, trying to ruin the environment. And so I do, I think it just, if I could, piggyback off of the the criticism thing i do see a lot of criticism on like social media and even it with ranchers to ranchers and they're like oh why would you ever uh feed like grain to your cattle you know like anti-grain people and um i think you know the goal is we want to leave the place better than when we left it and i think if there's if it's a if it's a small step towards uh you know doing that is to me that's a win and i think you know i have ranchers that they come from every spectrum every every land dynamic and family dynamic um and so i think it's always we we, we want to improve like we want to be better we don't you know we obviously don't want to go backwards or if we wouldn't even having be having this conversation so yeah i think one of the keys is it's not you know not having these conversations and trying to vilify or throw blame i think it's yeah. important to avoid that and i think that the direction that it's better to go is to encourage people to ask questions. Yeah. You know, it, it's one of the Assume things- good intentions. 
it's one of the things you learn, excuse me, in the course. And I, I love to quote Stan Parsons on that, that the truth cannot be taught. It must be discovered. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, like you mentioned earlier, Dallas, the course is not prescriptive. It doesn't give you the magic bullet. It just hands you a toolbox that you can choose to use or not. So uh, so what's something that your listeners don't know about you guys, maybe outside of your uh, ranching, agricultural life, hobbies, uh, things like that? What's something that, that, that maybe they don't they don't know about you yet? You know, I... I haven't had much time for hobbies for about five years since uh, since I got real deep in the my last tree clearing project, and that led into a wildfire, which led into wildfire recovery, which led into another tree clearing project, which led into grip grazing. So um, I really well, don't know. Uh, do you have, time do you have something that you maybe you're looking at that maybe hey, I, I think maybe I'll get into this as as uh, as things slow down in your in your professional life. Well, other than starting up a podcast, uh, that's, that's taking quite a bit <laughs> yeah. of time. And yeah, I, want, I, don't, I don't want to take this opportunity to, to to thank you for encouraging me to do this several times over the last six Nice. Years. Yeah. It, it, if you're out there listening and you're wondering why I did this, y- y'all can blame Dallas. Send direct all hate mail. <laughs> Dallas Mount, care of Wheatland, Wyoming. So, so the truth oh, is God. I was considering hiring you to do this for ranching for profit and uh, you decided to do it as uh, as Brian and CK. Uh, so you know when this thing goes uh, is, is the top podcast on the Apple playlist. I'm going to be really mad at you. You know that, right? <laughs> We're going to make millions get sold to Spotify, but not with any censoring. We'll yeah. give you a percentage, Dallas. There we go. There we you go. just don't, I, you, oh, it's a dollar for every time we say ranching for profit. Okay, <laughs> you keep track. Uh, um, I, I I want to applaud you. Uh, what a what a cool thing! And to take an idea and and run with it, um, I I'm totally supportive of what you guys are doing. Way well, to go. You know, after you were here a few months ago, and you know, we did kind of discuss it in person a little bit. Not very long after that, uh, CK and I really started talking. And, yeah. And she came back about a month ago with an opportunity that uh, really pretty much a proposal I couldn't refuse. Nice. And I had to do it. Like, I want to do like an office hours or something that connects ranchers with ranchers. And we just talk shop. We don't have to talk about anything that we do, but um, we just, we're just missing that. And I, I mean, I, you know, you do get tired of going to like conventions and trade shows because they're all during the same season, right? But I, I'm like, wow, I haven't seen a trade show but besides like these Zoom ones, which Brian and I are zoomed out a little bit. Um, yeah. You can only, you know, do that so much when you miss the actual like nuances of, you know, just talking shop and and laughing about random things. So, right. um, <laughs> yeah, I miss you guys <laughs> oh, so much. <laughs> I'll see you in like three weeks, Dallas. I don't know when I'll get to I miss you guys, but it's also almost the weekend. So can we wrap it up? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No. So, so before we, before I have CK take us out, Dallas, where can our listeners find you? Any website, resource, product you want to talk about real quick to, uh, to send people? Sure. Uh, ranchingforprofit.com, ranchmanagement.com. Either those will take you to our site where we have everything. Uh, you know, if, if you haven't been to the school, uh, get to the school. If, if you're in the ranching business, uh, you, you need to come. It's, yes, it's a commitment, uh, a financial commitment. Probably the bigger commitment is finding a way to organize your life to get you away from the ranch. Uh, but but really, if, if your ranch really is a business or if it's going to be a business, uh, 
finding a week for professional development should be a part of any normal business owner's uh, routine. This, this really shouldn't be an exception. It should be more the rules. So uh, if, if it really is going to be a business um, come, you won't regret it. For those people that have been through the school, if they're not aware of it yet, I want to point out, we've, we just came out with a new resource called RFP Online. Uh, when all the coronavirus stuff hit, uh, we got a lot of pressure to start doing the school online. And, and maybe mm. it's my paradigms blocking me, but I just can't see how you can have- It's not the same. It's not the same. How, how you can change paradigms. Yep. How you can I, I can't sit. I love you, Dallas, but I can't sit with you for six days. No, but you, hours you just a day make on amazing connections. I'm sorry, you make yeah. amazing connections that I still have with the people I sat with around at that table, and I still think, you know, you just you just do. It's not the same. I agree. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you guys see it the way I see it. So, so what we did instead is we came up with a an online support curriculum for people that have been through the school and are maybe hitting roadblocks when they start applying. So uh, so that's out there now. We, we decided to make it a subscription-based model. So 20 bucks a month um, and you get access to all the resources. Uh, we do two webinars a month with ranchers who are applying uh, the principles that we teach. And uh, so if you haven't, haven't checked that out yet, go check it out. You know, I, I almost forgot something, Dallas. Um, you know, we're, talk, we're trying to talk about young people and resources. So last summer, you, uh, you did a deal in Wheatland for young folks. You want to talk yeah. about that? And are you yeah, going to do I'd it again? To, I'd love to talk about it because, yeah, we are going to do it again. Um, and and it um, so we call it the business fundamentals for young ranchers is, is what we're calling it. It is not a ranching for profit school, but it is it is a glimpse at the ranching for profit curriculum uh, for, mm. for young people. And, and we're targeting that age group of 18 to 25. Um, so okay, it's those guys question. that are that are headed off to college uh, or that are maybe, you know, just right out of college. Um, and, and our intent with that is to to wake them up that conventional agriculture is probably not the way of, of the future and and doing the things your dad and grandpa have always done and carrying that on is probably not going to produce the results that you. Uh, so so we just want to plant that seed so that they can, as they enter that critical phase of their life, can start seeing things differently and, and challenging things. So so we're scheduled to do that again. It's, it's actually up in Sheridan, Wyoming is where it takes place. Um, and actually this year we're doing it on a host ranch in Decker, Montana. So, so just north of Sheridan. Oh, cool. That'll be neat. Be, oh, it's going to be incredible. Uh, June 14, 15, or 16, 17. So it's four days, June 14th through the 17th. Uh, we're going to stay on the ranch, camping, uh, tents, RVs, whatever you want to do. Uh, we're going to have somebody come out and cater the whole thing. So you know, we'll have all the feeding. The, the way we do the school is half a day of classroom type stuff. So this is going to be sitting around in camp chairs, right? Looking at flip charts is what it's going to be. And, and then, uh, and then the other half flip charts. Day, yeah. The other half a day is on a ranch. So we've got four host ranches that we go visit over the course of that time. Um, one of those ranches is the Padlock Ranch, which, which is one of the leading ranches at, at applying really cool stuff. And, and it's a good sized place too. So it, it's fun to go see how they're applying those things. So, so yeah, the business fundamentals for young ranchers, um, we're, we're going to fill that within the first few days of registration <laughs> being open uh, because we already have a wait list from last year. They couldn't come. That's last amazing. Year ended, yeah, last year we ended up with 48 young people from 17 states. And that was oh. after COVID shut down all of our international people. So we had people coming from Canada, Australia, Mexico. Uh, none of those could get in. So we went back to our waiting list and filled it from that. So, um, so yeah, if you're, if you're a young person in ranching, um, you gotta, you gotta come to that, but you better be on the stick 
to, to get signed up uh, when it opens up. And where can they go to find out more or where, where do they need to watch for that announcement? So this is going to air mid-March, you said? Uh, yes. Uh, it, it's going to be full by then. Um, okay. we're, we're, we're opening <laughs> Sorry, it up. Sorry, uh, next year, yeah. maybe. We're, we're opening it up February 15th. And, uh, and I suspect we'll be full by, uh, but in, in future years, we're actually looking at adding a, a second one of these that, that we'll do more than, um, so look for that. South Dakota grasslands is, is contracting with me to do a, a school for them, um, for young people, same, same kind of model, uh, July 13th through the 16th. Uh, so I'm not sure what the availability of that one might be, but that, that might be worth checking. Awesome. Awesome. Did we leave anything else on the table today, Dallas? Well, hopefully lots, because I want to be on again so we can talk about more stuff. Yeah. Oh, we'll have to have you on again. It's, you know, it's been a wonderful, uh, wonderful conversation. We've definitely gone past an hour and a half. Not that that's a bad thing. It's been enjoyable. I know CK wants to go and, uh, and get her weekend started down in Aggieville. So Dallas, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. CK, well, if you would, please. I uh, really appreciate what you're doing in, in this space. And uh, Brian, it's been a joy to get to know you more and to have you at NEL. And CK, I hope to have that opportunity with you when the time's right. All right. Sounds good. All right. It's been a very good episode of Ranching Reboot with Red Hills Rancher and CK Dallas Mount, Ranch Management Consultants. Thank you. Hey gang, it's Red Hills Rancher again. Thanks for riding with us this week. Don't forget to come back every Monday for a new episode, and sometimes we'll even sneak out a midweek special release. So watch for that. Come hang out with us in a Ranching Reboot paddock. And I tell you what, if you guys could go to your favorite podcast app or go to Apple and leave us a five-star review, that would sure be awesome. If this podcast is really helping you out and changing your life and inspiring you to think new thoughts, I encourage you to please share it with your friends. Share it outside of your network and spread the word. Together, we can change the world. Red Hills Rancher, out. <laughs>